We're going to continue our study this afternoon in 1 Corinthians. And so you can open up to the New Testament. There at the beginning of the New Testament, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by Acts. And then you have the epistles beginning in Romans and then 1 Corinthians. If you're not used to handling a Bible, those verses are the small numbers. The chapters are the big number. We're going to be at the very beginning of the book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking this afternoon at verses 18 to 25. Is it ever possible for a church, maybe out of a desire to be effective in the world, to see more people come to know Christ, that they end up adjusting their message or conforming their lives in such a way that they would communicate to the world around them, see, look, we are just like you. You're really no different than us. It seems that some of that thinking, which plagues many evangelical churches today, that that even haunts and plagues the temptations that are in our own hearts, in our own church, Well, that was true all the way back in the early church as well. And I've said before, many people will say, well, maybe you and I, maybe our churches, we need to be more like those first century churches, more like those early churches. And as I've mentioned before, that if we're really being honest with ourselves, we would discover that in the temptations of our own hearts and our own piety and practice in our churches, we are in many ways so much like that early church. There were a lot like this church. A church that has been called by God's grace and yet is still being sanctified. On the one hand, it is one thing for God and His grace to call someone out of the world, but it's a whole nother thing to get the world out of that person. And that's the process of sanctification. And that's true not just of individuals, but it's also true of churches. It's true of our church, and it's true of this church. And the gospel is the very power of God not only to save them, but to sanctify them, to make them more and more like Christ. And we trust that the same gospel will do the the same work in our own church. And so with that in mind, would you, would you stand with me for the public reading of our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And as we do, I want you to latch on to this one big idea. This is Paul's big idea from this passage. If I were to call any one of you at 3 o'clock in the morning and you didn't put your phone on do not disturb and you happen to answer and I say, hey, what is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 all about? This is what you're going to say. The gospel seems foolish to the world, but is the power of God to save. The gospel seems foolish to the world, but is the power of God to save. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Let me just catch you up on a little bit of context. If you're joining us for the first time or if you just need a little bit of reminding, in verses 2 through 9, Paul reminds this church of who they are and of where they've come from. This is a messy church. It's full of worldliness and divisions. And yet even in spite of all of their mess, the Apostle Paul doesn't begin with a rebuke but a reminder. Three times he reminds them that they have been called, summoned by God according to his great grace. But this church had forgotten that grace. The gospel, which was meant to be at the very center of the heart of the church, had, be, had moved out to the periphery. And by abandoning the gospel, by moving it out to the periphery, by becoming more focused on things that the world values rather than what the gospel values... Divisions came into the church. That's what we saw in verses 10 through 17 last week. And so Paul leaves them then with a plea, with an appeal in verse 10. Be united. Namely, be united in Christ. You who have been called in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says this worldliness leading to divisions ultimately empties the cross of its power. That it contradicts the reality of a of the very Son of God being raised from the dead, that you may preach the gospel, but your life together communicates something altogether different. That it suggests to the world that there's no power in what you preach whatsoever because you look just like the world. Well, Paul's going to continue his reasoning, beginning in verse 18, and you can see it with that word for. He's not starting a new argument. He's continuing the argument that he ended in verse 17, that Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The apostle Paul says, when I came to you, I just preached the gospel from the scriptures as plainly and as clearly as I possibly could. I didn't adorn it in a manner that would impress the world, but I just shot like a bullet the true, faithful, simple gospel and you believed. But once we start to be more concerned with appearing eloquent, with appearing wise to the world, well, then we empty the cross of its power. And he's going to explain why in verse 18. Here we're going to notice that there are two kinds of people in the world. From our perspective, we look at the world and, and we see all different kinds of people. 
And we organize people perhaps by their ethnicity or their age, by their nationality or any, any other host of things. But, but theologically speaking, from a Godward perspective, we notice that everyone in the world is essentially grouped into two groups. Those who are condemned in Adam through whom death and sin spread to all men and those who are in Christ by faith counted righteous in him. Or to put it in the language of verse 18, those who are perishing and us who are being saved. The whole world can be categorized, spiritually speaking, into these two groups, those who are perishing and us who are being saved. And what is the dividing line then? What divides those who are perishing from us who are being saved? Well, we see it there at the beginning of verse 18. It is the word of the cross. It's the gospel. Why does he use the language, the word of the cross? What is it? Well, it's no less than two things. We know, first of all, the word of the cross, the gospel, is an announcement. It is an announcement that at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the very eternal Son of God, having become a man, lived a life of perfect obedience, and then died a death as a substitute for those who would repent and believe in Him, at that cross, God's judgment is revealed. Not only is God's judgment revealed, but the, but the last days, according to the writer of the Hebrews, the, the end of the ages has been inaugurated. In other words, the end has begun. The last days are upon us, and every person is caught up in these last days. Every day is caught up in this revelation of judgment revealed at the cross, and they're caught up in it either in salvation or destruction. You say, well, how then, if the cross is a proclamation of the judgment of God, are some then caught up in it for salvation and some caught up in it for destruction? And the answer is because secondly, the gospel is not merely or only a declaration, it's also an invitation. It's an, it's an invitation for sinners to escape the wrath to come. It's an invitation for those who by faith in Christ would see that they're no longer, that they're not destined for wrath, but eternal life in Christ should they receive the, the promised blessings of the gospel by faith alone. It's to say that if you were to take Christ and declare him as Lord by faith, laying aside all that you would cling to as a matter of commending yourself to God and clinging to Christ alone, as the only basis for righteousness before an all-holy God, then God invites you by faith to receive all of the blessings and the benefits of salvation. And so the word of the cross is not only an announcement of judgment and of salvation, but it's an invitation for sinners to become participants in the salvation that God offers in Christ but John, I want you to also notice in verse 18 that these two groups have two different attitudes toward the word of the cross. On the one hand, those who are perishing see the word of the cross as folly. It's foolishness. It's silly. Why is that? 
Well, you and I, when we see a cross, we don't really think anything of it. We've got one standing in the back of the stage. We see them on buildings today. They're on t-shirts and bumper stickers. Some of you are wearing jewelry, earrings, or, or maybe even a necklace with a cross on it. But in Paul's day, it was scandalous. That crucifixion under a Roman regime was an industry of torture. It wasn't merely a means of meeting out justice against lawbreakers. It was a means to stamp out any kind of possible rebellion that fringe groups or the poor would even think about perpetrating against the Roman Empire. They wanted everyone to see something so grotesque, something so, so shameful, so scandalous that they would never think in a million years to go against Caesar, to go against the Roman emperor. It was scandalous. If we were to consider perhaps a modern equivalent for the cross, we might think about Chinese labor camps, a Nazi Holocaust camp, or maybe even closer to home, Jim Crow lynchings. It would be the equivalent of us walking around with t-shirts with nooses on them or wearing crosses with nooses on them. It's so scandalous as to make you blush. But what was ultimately scandalous for those who heard is that when you consider God, isn't God supposed to be all-powerful in the notion that, that God would become a man and rather than assume full authority politically and militarily establishing his earthly throne, what does he do? He not only dies, but he dies a humiliating public death, a scandalous death on a cross. What foolishness. How silly is that? <laughs> that God, the supposed creator of the world, died on a cross, no less. Ridiculous. And so you consider Jesus' words, Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, and they wag their heads. Why do people mock Christ crucified? Why do people make mouths, funny faces at Christ crucified? Why do people wag their heads in disbelief? How silly is that? Why do they do that? Because Paul says they are, verse 18, perishing. These are the attitudes of those who are passing away with this present age. They are perishing. It is the mocking of dead men and dead women walking. And so to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It's silliness. What in the world would I want anything to do with such a crazy notion? But I want you to notice there's a second group and a second attitude. To the first, the gospel is folly. But to the second, it is, see that there in verse 18? It is power. It is the power of God. And I want you to note that it doesn't say that it is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. In other words, at the cross, God is not only revealing, but he is acting. He's not only speaking, but he's doing something. What is he doing? He's saving. 
He is working in power according to his eternal decree to save those whom he promised to give to his son. He not only speaks, but he acts in power. And these believers knew that that was the case. The members of this church knew that that was the case. Paul had just reminded them that they had been enriched, that they were lacking in nothing, that they were secured for the future. And all of this through the word of the cross, the word of the cross, verse 6, that testimony about Christ that was confirmed among them. How is it confirmed among them? Because when the apostle Paul came preaching the gospel, he came in the spirit and of power. Chapter 2, verse 5. And how do you know that it came in spirit and power? Because they believed. They knew that it was true. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel all the time. My whole life, I saw it in my home. I heard it in the church. I grew up around youth groups. I heard the gospel. I knew the gospel. I could repeat the gospel. I went on mission trips as a teenager. I could tell the gospel to others. But as soon as I left home and went to college, I abandoned the gospel, not as an act of backsliding, but because I didn't want anything to do with the gospel. I loved my sin. To me, the gospel was folly. And when I was 21 years old, a friend of mine named Jerry Self called me on the phone in April of 1999. He and I had a falling out some months earlier. And he calls me on the phone in April of 1999. And he says, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. I'm concerned about you. Little did he know what a mess my own heart and life had become. Aimless, shiftless lost, and he shared the gospel with me over the phone. It was the same gospel that I had heard my whole life growing up. It's the same gospel that I could tell others on youth group mission trips. It's the same gospel that I rejected when I went to college. But in that moment, the gospel was declared to me in a demonstration of spirit and of power because for the first time in my life, I said, that is true. I believed it. And if you're a member of this church, that's because the same thing has happened to you once upon a time. That the gospel came to you, whether through the preaching of a faithful pastor or the faithful witness of a friend or perhaps an open-air evangelist as you walked by or through some other means. And God, through the work of his spirit, used his word to shine the very glory of God through the face of Christ into your heart that led you to believe That in that moment, the word of the cross was not folly to you anymore. It was the power of God to save. Amen? That's our testimony if we're Christians. And so it's through the scandal of the cross that God has worked in power to deal with humanity's deepest need, our sin and its consequences. But why is it though? Why is it according to verse 18? Why is it folly to some? Why isn't it more impressive? Why isn't it the kind of message that everybody loves? It's because it's not ultimately an intellectual message. It's not ultimately a cultural message. It's not ultimately a political message. It is ultimately a spiritual message that can only be spiritually discerned. It's theological because it begins with God. 
And so we've seen in verse 18, really the first point of Paul's logic, and it's this, that the gospel is folly to some, but it is power to others. But now in verses 19 to 21, he's going to further explain the reason that is, the reason that the gospel is folly to some and power to others is because God thwarts human wisdom and he saves through a foolish gospel. Look at verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Why, are, does the, why is it that those who are perishing think the word of the cross is folly? God makes a staggering statement through the prophet Isaiah quoted by Paul in verse 19. See it there? It's repeated twice. I did it. I'm responsible. Verse 19 is the basis for verse 18. In other words, the Old Testament promise quoted in verse 19 is fulfilled by the fact of verse 18 whenever the gospel is proclaimed. But if we're going to understand how it is that Paul is interpreting the Old Testament, that we might be able to read the Old Testament in the same way, let's put our fingers here in 1 Corinthians 1, and I want you to go to your left, right to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29. If you've hit the Psalms or Proverbs, you've gone too far to the left. If you're still in obscure names of prophets, keep going to your left, you'll find Isaiah. Big long book right there in the middle of your Bible. And I want you to go to chapter 29 because here is where Paul is quoting from. Isaiah chapter 29. The context here is that Israel's leaders have exchanged God's word with their own wisdom. They have, in a sense, made themselves gods in God's world. And God says, I am going to thwart that wisdom. Look at verse 14. Behold, tell me if this sounds familiar, I'm going to do wonderful things with this people. In other words, I'm not done with Israel. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. So the Apostle Paul is quoting Isaiah 29 verse 14. And what he is saying essentially is that the promised gospel, that's how the Apostle Paul is using it. The promised gospel, the word of the cross is going to be human pride repellent. When Kathy and I bought the house that we're in right now, one of the things that we loved about it was the front porch, and we thought, man, isn't it going to be great? We're going to be able to sit on the front porch and, and drink coffee and, and iced tea. Well, I don't really like iced tea, but other kind of iced drinks, perhaps. Well, that'd be awesome. We even put a couple of chairs out there. It looks really nice. And then as soon as the weather, kind of like now, gets to the point where you can go outside and sit on the front porch, you're like... You know what I'm talking about? You live in Texas, you know. You just start getting swarmed by mosquitoes to where you can't stay out there for any manner of minutes. We bought this whole house to enjoy the porch, but we can't enjoy the porch because of all the mosquitoes. And so what do we do? We buy repellent. Now, if you're my wife, what you do is you buy natural repellent, which is just like rubbing water on your arm. It's organic, right? What you need in order to sit on my porch is all of the DEET in Denton. 
And the Apostle Paul is saying that's kind of what the gospel is like. It is spiritual deet to human pride. I will thwart their wisdom. And I will hide or I will destroy their discernment. The weakness of the cross repels proud humans. It is human pride repellent. But I want you to notice, where is Paul getting his categories? He's talked now of those who are perishing, and he's talked of those who are being saved. Well, notice in the, in the verses that follow that that's exactly who we see here. In verses 15 to 16, we see, as it were, those who are perishing. And what do we notice as we scan through those verses? We see those who scoff at God, who thinks God is silly. Those who have postured themselves as the potter and God as the clay. And look at the language down at the very bottom of 16. God has no understanding. We are wise. God is foolish. The things of God are foolish. Does that sound familiar? It's 1 Corinthians 1. The folly of God, he says, will thwart human wisdom by working in power to save the meek. And that's exactly what we see in the verses that follow. He is going to thwart the proud wisdom of those who are perishing, verses 15, 16, by, through the weakness of the gospel, saving those who are weak and unimpressive. Look at verse 18. In that day, the day that... Lebanon is turned back into a fruitful field in the day that the Israel of God bears fruit for the world. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. A new book and a new message is going to be opened up and read. A message that all the way back up in verses 11 and 12 was shut off to those who did not believe, to those who rely on their own wisdom. No, it says there's going to be some who hear this message and notice this verse 18, out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And look at this in verse 19, the meek, the humble, those who believe, they will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind will exalt in the Holy One of Israel. That those who are humbled by the word of the cross will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Where is Paul getting his categories? All Paul is doing is he's taking the scriptures and interpreting them in light of the cross. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1. God says, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning. I'm going to thwart. And then in verse 20 and 21, we see Paul now applying the principle of Isaiah 29 in his own day. And he begins with a handful of rhetorical questions. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? The key phrase there is of this age. This age that is passing away. This age that is decaying. This age that is rooted in death because of Adam's sin. This age that thinks its wisdom is wiser than God. This age that is passing away and will completely pass away at the final judgment of God. And so in each one of these rhetorical questions, he means to get to the heart of those whom this church wants to oppress above all. And he's saying, what is the wise of the world ultimately delivered when it comes to what really matters most? 
He begins with those who are wise. That'd be those who go around the world teaching a worldview or philosophy. In Paul's day, that would have been the Epicureans or the Platonists. Today, perhaps, we might consider them to be thought leaders that we follow or read or watch. Leaders like, I don't know, Jordan Peterson or Ibram X. Kendi or Greta Thunberg. Those who would be considered thought leaders shaping the moral imaginations and worldviews of those who follow them, of social media influencers. The ones that are wise, he says, where are they? But he also draws attention to the scribe. The scribe here is those who would be knowledgeable in God's law. And so you remember in Jesus' earthly ministry that, that he often debated the scribes. Well, today, perhaps it might be a biblical scholar. Or right over at the University of North Texas, it would be a religion's professor. We might think about the popular author Bart Ehrman. Those who would count themselves to be experts in the scripture who think that in their knowledge that they have perhaps eternal life, but to them the Lord Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, where's the scribe? Finally, he says, where is the debater of this age? In Corinth, in that Roman day, these would have been the poets and the performers. This would have been what you would have dressed up for and taken your wife out to see as a good performance and a good debate. They made a good living putting on good shows. They were popular figures making a good living debating others on how we're to think and what we're to do and what we're to believe about whatever the current issues of the day might have been. Today, I wonder who that might be. Perhaps a famous media mogul. Then maybe it's the Tucker Carlson or the Don Lemon of our age. It's the Fox News or the, or the CNN of our age. Of those who we stop life for to sit down and listen so that we can think about and be entertained by concerning the current events of our day. But what Paul is saying is where is then the philosopher of today? Where is the biblical scholar? Where is the media man? Paul says, in the gospel, God has turned all of them into fools. Of course, the implicit exhortation here by the apostle Paul is, why would you want to impress them, much less put your trust in them? That is not what you've been called into. C.S. Lewis you may remember there was a picture, it's in many of his biographies, but there's a picture of C.S. Lewis, a young C.S. Lewis sitting in a common room at Oxford. The common room is where everybody would come to, to debate the relevant issues of the day. All of the, the smartest men and the smartest faculty on the planet would all come and you look around and, and every single one of them, almost to a man, were unbelievers. And so when this young professor of literature, C.S. Lewis, became a Christian, and he began to defend it on the radio, and he began to write books about it, well, the rest of the faculty found him extremely embarrassing. He wasn't popular at all. They didn't talk to Lewis about any of these things. They want anything to do about it. That's just silliness. And Lewis would admit that he felt shunned by them. But to Lewis, that didn't matter. 
Because C.S. Lewis had discovered in the cross of Christ a wisdom that the world didn't know. He had discovered in the word of the cross a wisdom that the wisest of the men around him, with all of their prestigious degrees and their worldwide renown, and their falling apart marriages and their alcoholism and various other things, that he had found a wisdom that they considered to be foolish. He found a wisdom that brought about a power to reconcile God to man and man to one another. And the brightest minds at Oxford had no clue how to do that. Beloved, in every generation, in every age, new philosophies arise, don't they? New philosophies that, pro, that promise redemption, whether personally or societally, whether it's Stoicism or Epicureanism in Paul's age, or whether it's Marxism or fascism or transgenderism or whatever it may be, that promises a false salvation according to self-rule, God says, I will destroy it all. I will make foolish in that last day all of the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world may seem like a powerful idea now. Boy, it may seem like it has all of the sway in society. It may seem like a giant tsunami that cannot be stopped, that is just going to sweep away everything. And the Apostle Paul says, don't believe it for a minute. That through the foolishness of the gospel, through it coming to you in power in the spirit and your belief, God is now and will finally at the end of the age Prove the foolishness of the wisest wisdom of men. Only the gospel will prevail. He wants that to be their confidence. And so that raises a couple of application points for you and I. Number one, we need to consider the impact that this has on our own evangelistic ministry. On the preaching ministry of our church, perhaps. We need to, as one writer, Rico Tice, put it, we need to cross the pain line. What is that line of pain? Well, it's not to throw yourself necessarily willingly into harm's way. It's to cross that pain line from being ashamed of the gospel to not being ashamed. It's to cross that pain line between being fearful of being seen by your neighbor as silly or foolish and not caring anymore. It's to cross that pain line between, boy, my neighbors really seem to love me and my coworkers seem to really love me. But when they find out not only what I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, but the way that that shapes my whole life under his lordship as I aim by his grace to obey his word. It might even get me fired from my job. He's saying that out of obedience to the gospel, we need to cross the pain line. The apostle Paul says something similar to the, to the Corinthian church in chapter four. Turn over one page. Verse eight again, he reminds them that they don't need to add anything to the gospel. In the gospel that has been given to them by the apostles, verse eight, he says, you already have everything you want. He says, in Christ, you have already become rich. But then he starts to lay the sarcasm on thick. He says, but yet without us, 
Without the apostolic gospel, you've become kings. You're really impressive to the world. And would that you did reign so that you might share that rule with you. He's being sarcastic. Verse 9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Same word, folly. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake. We've crossed the pain line from comfort into foolishness. He says, but you, read sarcasm, you are wise in Christ. Impressive to the world. He says, we are weak, but you, oh no, you're strong. You are held in honor That's the kind of church the world wants to go to. But we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, some of this was just by virtue of Paul's apostolic calling. The the risen Lord Jesus Christ told him when he appeared to him in glory that this is what he was going to do. He was going to appear before kings and he was going to suffer for his name. And he's just recounting that. But notice what he says. This is how we know it's sarcasm. He says, I am your father in Christ. I'm your father in the faith. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. When are you going to cross the pain line? He says, when are you going to give up being wise for becoming fools? Verse 10, when are you going to give up being perceived as strong for being perceived as weak? When are you going to give up being held in honor by the world's to be held in disrepute for fidelity to the gospel. The gospel is calling us to not be, that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel, but there is a pain line that you and I are going to cross that means that if we're going to be faithful to it, our neighbors and our coworkers and many others are going to think that we are fools. Are you okay with that? In your workplace, with your neighbors, In your family, when you go home for Thanksgiving or 4th of July or Christmas, are you okay with going, everybody in this house thinks I am an utter fool because of Jesus. I can't be anything else. And so Paul is telling them, stop trying to impress the wise in the world. By trying to impress the wise and the powerful with your ministry, with the factions that you've broken up into. No, no, listen, listen. We're of Apollos and we're of Cephas and all of these worldly attitudes. By trying to make yourself impressive to the world, all you've done is emptied the cross of its power. No, hold fast to the word of the cross. Stop trying to impress the wise of the world. Stop trying to bend the message to be palatable to the world. And that leads us to the final point in verses 22 to 25. In verse 18, Paul said the gospel is folly to some, but power to others. And that's because in verses 19 to 21, God thwarts human wisdom and he saves through a foolish gospel. And so now in verses 22 to 25, he concludes by exhorting them implicitly, hold fast to the gospel. 
He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why do Jews demand signs? It says, because the cross of Christ is Scandalon, a scandal. It is a stumbling block. Why do Greeks demand wisdom? Because the cross of Christ is folly. And so when you preach the simple gospel, the world is always going to demand something in place of or in addition to the gospel. Why should we come to your church? Why should we show up in your gatherings? Why should we be friends with you Christians? Well, it's because we care about what you care about. How many churches front load the concerns of the world with the hope of of baiting the world with the world's concerns only to hook them with the gospel at the end? Paul says, stop. Preach the gospel. That's what you've been called to do. And then let God in his sovereign grace draw hard lines in the world. All of those whom he calls to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will call. And all of those who think you're foolish for the gospel, the Lord in his justice will harden. Trust the Lord, preach Christ. And that's what he says here. A perishing world is always going to demand something in the place of or in addition to the plain gospel message. But Paul says, no, we're going to preach Christ crucified. Notice on our banners, this is the tagline of our church, not because we aim to say that we're so much better or have it together anymore. All we're trying to do is quote verse 23. We preach Christ. Why do we put it as our tagline? For advertising purposes? Well, maybe, but mostly. Mostly so that we might be reminded time and again to never alter the message of the gospel. What is our task as a church? What is at the very heart of our mission? What is at the very heart of all of our discipling and our counseling and our evangelism? What is at the very heart of all of our weeping and rejoicing and all of our comforting and our giving? What is at the heart of all of it? It's Christ. We preach Christ. And let me tell you something. Beloved, the gospel will look weak And it will feel weak. And you're going to watch the news and it's going to feel like we're losing. The world's going to laugh at us. It's going to think that we're silly. It's going to think that we're superstitious. It's going to think that we're bigoted. But when we preach Christ, listen to me. When we resist the temptation to bend our message to the culture and we aim to preach Christ like a single bullet, boom! The power of God is unleashed to save, verse 13, those, or 2021, those who believe. That's how it works. And so praise God that in his wisdom, he has made foolish the wisdom of the world He chooses to work in power through a weak message, a ridiculous message, a silly message about the cross. Joe Henson, when you go out and you preach the cross of Christ, do people scoff at you? Do they think it's a silly message? Do they laugh at it? What ridiculousness that someone like, how unscientific, how unsophisticated. But you got to cross the pain line, don't you? 
Be fools for Christ. Praise God for your ministry, brother. And may that be true of all of us in the context to which God has called us and in the preaching of our church. Because God chooses to work in power through the weak message of the cross. Atheist Richard Dawkins once mocked a Christian for his belief in Jesus. He said, quote, He believes that the creator of the universe... The God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the physical constants. That this genius of mathematics and physical science could not think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. Christ crucified That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. It's folly to those who are perishing. Who in a million years would have imagined that God would choose to work this way? Mankind could not come up with it if they would, and they would not come up with it if they could. It is utterly divine. And so to Dawkins, it's an argument against the Christian faith, this gospel of a crucified Savior. But for the Apostle Paul, as we saw this afternoon, Christ crucified is the very center of the Christian faith. And it is the power of God to save. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.